Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages to talk about writing, publishing, editing, and the whole creative process. There may be rants and raves and opinions that don't agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, it's all about me, Jeannie Warner, with a happy reunion with Lynn Herod. Welcome back, Lynn. Thank you, Jeannie. Thanks for having me come back. Well, it is my delight, and I had to follow up. Not only have you released a new book, Child of Imago, which I've read and loved, I have to ask you something from last episode. I thought of you the whole time of the writer strike was going on. What's the latest on Concepcion? Well, uh, Concepcion, uh, the last that we looked at it, we had a couple of meetings and came real close, but it seems like ever since the COVID lockdown, uh, the trail has gone a little cold. It's still alive, but uh, uh, those leads are still in development. So as of right now, it's everything's kind of lukewarm for that. I was wondering because of the weird buzz that I think we all have been dealing with one way or another. For instance, I am deeply in mourning about uh, our flag means death being canceled when it was only supposed to be three series, three seasons, and they made it two. And I, I loved that uh, there's a lot of people that signed a, hey, we really want this. Plus, the head of Warner Brothers is getting in trouble for insider training. So yeah. I feel like yours could be that way if they ran it for a season and then stopped it suddenly for no reason. Well, we'll we'll see what happens with it. I, I, like I said, it's still alive, uh, but as of right now, there's there's other projects that are kind of pulling us away. So we we're, we're working on the the back burner stuff is now the front burner stuff. So it it totally happens. Okay, good. I just didn't want it to be lost because I read your one sheet, which was freakishly cool to learn about what a one sheet is, and I want to watch that show. I think it'll be interesting. Oh, I I desperately want to watch it. My goodness, I do. I. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be uh, its biggest fan. <laughs> Here's a strange question for you. I, you've got to have written scripts for a few of the episodes already. Yes. Have you, in the last, since it's been a year or so, do you, do you go back and look at them and change things still? Do you keep poking? Um, I, you know, I did that for a while, but at this point, enough material is written that I actually make an effort not to go back and look at it because at this point, if, if the show was greenlit and put into production, any further material would have to be a collaboration between several people. So my job as the writer for now uh, is on pause. If, if I were to go back and, and review things and I would just drive myself crazy, you know, changing things that uh, in the end might be, you know, pointless, you know, until that collaboration begins. Exactly. And it's just a reminder, everybody, even though you own it, might be the showrunner, you might not be the writer of every single episode. Is that how it works? Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you know, there are shows where there's a single writer, you know, uh, but most of the time it is, it's a, it's a staff of writers being led by the showrunner or a head writer. Right. And you know, that's where the magic happens. So, so you want to save some of your juice for that. Any, any, ideas I come up with now might be changed or might be inferior to what we come up with later. So, but for right now, the, the baby is born. We just got to take care of it as a village, you know. Excellent. Well, then I'll switch topics and talk about yet another infant of yours, child of, and I'm going to say it, Imago, or is it Imago? Im Imago. It is Imago. I wanted to say like Iago, except Imago. 
<laughs> I, the min- I have to say I cheated a little bit. The minute I saw her and she was this girl who came to and had did no memory and dot tattooed on her hand and picked up a dog, I kind of had a feeling where we might be going with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. I'm glad uh, that those little hints dropped here and there to give an idea of the of the structure. Yeah, people kind of want to know the structure of a story going into it. It makes me wonder, did you help Nate Otto all with the double critical series, Adventures in Oz? Or? Oh, I can't take credit for any of that. Nathan is uh, my my partner, Nathan McCoy. He's a genius when it comes to to that world. And so that's that's all entirely him. You know. Well, I, I cheated because, I don't know if you remember, but I was the head writer on that series. So when I read this one, I just started giggling oh. and couldn't stop. <laughs> no, no, it's I, that was all him. All that work that you read of his, that was him. I, I didn't help. I offered, but uh, I, I would be wholly underqualified to contribute to that work. You, you guys are far more advanced than I am on that. Well, we, you went different directions. And I have to say, I don't think it's cheating at all to say to anybody who might be wanting to read it, yeah, it, it is kind of many of the elements of Dot with her little dog might be what you think. But I wanted to say what I liked that you did that was different is that for a post-apocalyptic landscape, it wasn't in every cluster of humans living somewhere, not the biggest, jerkiest guy with a gun that was always running it. And that has been my personal flaw with all of these other post-apocalyptic online things. So thank you. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. I, 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 I welcome genre writing, but I, I like doing it in a way that's personal to me and is different. So you know, one of the, one of the challenges during Dot's journey, the protagonist's journey, is I did not want every place to feel the same, to be structured the same to have the same purpose. I wanted every place to be different. And I, I that's when you know when you when you look at something with an apocalyptic dystopian world, it is easy for everything to kind of feel the same, every place. Um so yeah, that was something I actively tried to tried to avoid that. I wanted everything to feel kind of fresh and unique. There is something that I like. I don't know how deeply you have ever read into Maureen Murdoch, I think, was the Jungian psychotherapist that was a student of Joseph Campbell, but she wrote something called The Heroine's Journey. And we've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes. And it was in response to Campbell's hero's journey model. And I just liked that you took a female character on the heroine's journey. And I thought that was very cool because it was about going deep and healing and reclaiming and a building up of found family. And that is very much what Dot does. And so again, salutes to you. That was extremely cool. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I appreciate that you you recognize the value in that. Like I wanted her journey to be, it is a literal journey, but it's also a journey within her own mind um, in, in more ways than one. So I just kind of, you know, I, I find it uh, underwhelming when someone goes on a journey just for a a goal. There needs to be more layers than that, more than just a goal. So she, I like it when prota- protagonists discover things that they hadn't even considered beyond just their goal. Um, and so, yeah, it was important to me that she she discovered new places in the real world and she discovered new places within herself. Well, she did, and she rejected the... I mean, it is a common idea that, oh, dear, you have a girl. 
She's only 15 years old. She surely the most important thing to her would be safety and belonging. And it has having been a 15 year old girl. Oh, dear God, no, <laughs> that is not even in the top three, you know, things that some girls want to go through. And so I wanted to say, you made her recognize that it's like, wow, everybody wants to protect me. Everybody wants to put me in a box. Everybody wants to use me for their purposes and say, I will belong and you'll never leave. And you have her reject that. And that is very natural and logical feeling to me as a female. So I really dig that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that, uh, that perspective. I, she does have things that build her confidence. She does not come out of it being overconfident necessarily. And these are, these are often traps that I see in different, when you have a, a, a single, especially young person going in, you also didn't thank you for not having her falling down sobbing or breaking into tears for no reason or anything, which seems to be, I have read many guys that have written women that assume that we all sob a lot and like, well, no, no, especially at 15, I can see girls going quiet. I can see them being withdrawn. I can see them being sullen and barely answering, but sobbing, not, not in front of others. No. Yeah. The, there, there needs to be a reason, whether it's a man or woman or boy or girl, if, if they have some kind of an emotional breakdown, it can't just be, oh, that's their personality. It, there needs to be, at least for me, there needs to be a reason. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, and a reason that, the reader can relate to and my, that would help a lot, you know? Um, so, yeah. So, so dots, uh, you know, when, when she first, when the story opens up, she starts out confused and scared and that anybody would be that way. Uh, but she quickly, and it goes with her character. It tells a lot, tells you a lot about her. She wants to know why, why people are fighting over her. And, and why people are putting themselves in harm's way over her. It's important. Like, you know, why are they doing this in my name on, you know, on my behalf? And yeah. that kind of kickstarts her emotional journey. Well, know? it does. And I, I was almost going to ask if you, if you'd followed it. So, cause it was really perfect. There was the inner conflict, which you represent with the two, the two girls, the light and the dark saying, come here, go away. <laughs> You'll be safe. You're in terrible danger. The recurring, the recurring dream is she, she when she's asleep, she occasionally has a very vivid dream where she's in this, this empty void with the two, the two spectral girls, and yeah, they do, they do in a way symbolize uh, the you know how torn she is between you know saving myself versus saving others, right? Doing the right thing versus uh, you know taking the safe path. Um, so yeah, that, that was part of the reason for that as well. I liked the, the light motif you had of what does doing the right thing mean? And that's, I think something anyone could ask in this day and age is they, my, my grandfather was an officer in the army and he's like, if your general ordered you to shoot every peasant in that village, you absolutely do not obey that order. Right. Right. And so that's the, I was just following orders, people that are actually, but no, you can't follow illegal orders in that way. And I liked that all the way through it, you had characters that were sometimes given commands that were unreasonable or unfair or unkind. And you give everybody, be they vegetable, metal or cowardly, line, I mean, um, <laughs> Wolfman, 
the opportunity to examine their own motivations and examine their own desires and what does it mean to believe in something and to believe in someone? Yeah, I mean the the for, for me the the best way for a character to question himself or herself is to be given a choice between what they how they were raised and you know how their what their instincts tell them. And and yeah, and a lot of the characters have that. You know, there's a there's a a machine, a, a a living machine in the story that even even he has that conflict between his programming and his what he observes, um, and he is considered flawed for it, uh, as opposed to being celebrated for it because he's just supposed to, like like you said he's supposed to just follow orders, right. Uh, so what's considered a flaw by his creators is considered a gift by Dot. You know, she she sees the humanity in that, you know, and the same with her other companions as well, her other friends. Well, and you had a lovely example because you have Dot and I'm, I'm not going to say Toto. Remind me of her dog's name. <laughs> Gypsy. 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 Love Gypsy. You have Dot and Gypsy as an interesting, okay, this one is vaguely human and this one is very definitely sort of german shepherdy so when you run across somebody that has become a hybrid of both you know the dog soldier as it were he gets to see right well what if belonging to the pack means not just doing things because but doing the right things not just behaving in an animal nature but saying i am an animal but i can answer to a higher reason and i kind of liked that he got to look that Gypsy got to be just as much of a good role model because yeah. Gypsy deserved to be an excellent role model. Gypsy is a very loyal dog, very loyal companion, and there are there are characters who are a hybrid of animal and human. And you know, there are times where they envy Gypsy for being a what they call a pure dog because he is uh, he is not bound or limited by human emotions and humans you know animals don't second guess themselves animals don't doubt themselves humans do right and so the the animal hybrids they they envy that but dot reminds like caesar for example who is a a wolf hybrid creature that that's not a weakness it's a strength the fact that you can you can decide what's right and wrong and whether or not it goes with what you've been taught or, or how you were trained, that is a gift. So D Dot is, is she is like the guide for her companions. She guides them into, uh, you know, not, not doubting yourself and, and following what you believe. And uh, Gypsy is kind of like the control for that. You know, G Gypsy is the control for that, just as the other machines are the control for, uh, for the Abraham character. You know, this is what you could be, but you could, but, I, I, I encourage you to be more, be more than what you're supposed to be. Well, he was almost, Caesar was almost the law of the jungle. The strength of the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack, you know? And it feels like when he first, his early pack was picking on him for not that he understood a slightly different interpret of him. But later I love that he got the recognition of no, no, you do represent that this is important. Right, right. So what was an, what was important to them being loyal to your pack 
it's it's not important that they're savage hunters. I mean, it is. But what's important is whatever pack you're part of, whatever family you're part of, you support that family. And yeah. so so when Caesar when Caesar was with a pack of other predator creatures, he was considered lowly because uh, of his his beliefs clashed with the packs. But when he joins our protagonist Dot and her 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 entourage, that becomes his new pack. And within that within that context, he actually excels. He's he's strong and brave, and and uh, he he found he found himself through another pack. And his former his former family admires him for it. I I did because I felt like his former family forgot one of the most important things that Rudyard Kipling ever wrote. Can I can I recite it for you? When you fight with a wolf of the pack, you must fight him alone and afar, lest others take part in the quarrel and the pack be diminished by war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And to me, that mattered a lot because they were doing the, oh, well, at the beginning when we first meet him, he's, you know, oh, well, the the, the whole pack is going to do something bad to him. And I'm like, wait, they're, they're, they've got pack wrong. They're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. And I loved that he came through. And after all of that self-doubt, he went on his own hero's journey, parallel to the heroine's journey, and that the other wolves came to respect him for it. And that was awesome. Yeah, they, they saw his success uh, or his, his, his strength within his new uh, place yeah. as opposed to within their place. Um, and and that was important to me. I, I didn't want the uh, the apex predators to just be mindless monsters. I wanted them to have a sense of honor. And and you know, again, they they look at their human side as a flaw, but it's actually a strength because they have a structure. They have a code. When we first meet Caesar, and he's in that terrible situation, that was his choice. He chose that. Like it was it was part of a traditional ceremony. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, it was. It's whenever possible, I wanted everything to be characters deciding. The character decision is makes things more interesting, in my opinion. It is, and it does. And even I, I got to admit, Vincent. You know, we all lose our heart to Vincent in the end. You know, I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. <laughs> one of the things I liked about him was that he didn't. You know. He wasn't the smartest of the, I didn't know if he was off looking for brains, but I loved his little book that, yeah. that he had a little book Father's to carry around. Of life about. instructions. Life instructions. I almost feel like we should, we should write those down for kids. You know, like, this is what I know. It's like when, when you are angry all the time, maybe you should eat something. If you're, <laughs> you're frustrated and can't focus, maybe you should take a nap. If you don't like yourself, maybe you should shower, you know, and. Right. These are things that I want to give adults that I know in addition to. <laughs> I mean, people buy self-help books, but wouldn't it be great to get a self-help book written particularly for you by the one person who knows you best? Like, wouldn't that be the best self-help book? That would be, except for then I'd have to write it for me and then I'd have to read it to me. And then I would get really resentful at me all the time. Yeah, v Vincent, uh, he's his flaws he is a simpleton and um he depends on that book uh, or he thinks he does and that book becomes a guide for his entire group of friends after a while yeah um yeah vincent vincent abraham and caesar they all have something in common and that is 
they are on an emotional journey and they have no idea in the beginning. Exactly. They, they think that they're just helping this girl on her journey, but in doing so, they each have their own. Um, and that, that was surprising to me as I wrote it, actually, because when I wrote this, my protagonist had a journey and she has companions that help her. But, you know, these her friends were so interesting. They 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 had their own backstories and they they just blossomed. And suddenly the book is 600 pages. You know, <laughs> I thought it was going to be a quick write. It, it took a, it took about a year, year and a quarter to write this. And how did you go about it? Did you just sort of start with a scene? What was the first scene you wrote of it? Well, the first scene I wrote of it was uh, there's a couple of a couple of moments in the book. The the, the opening scene, there's mm-hmm. that, uh, when she and she starts off with her in the void. She's she's in a dream, but then there were other moments where she uh, she encounters the rainforest. She encounters uh, the department, um, and I actually wrote these uh, thirty years ago. Wow. So, Thirty years ago, they were they were a short story, and uh, you know nothing. As I've said before on your show, nothing of mine goes to waste. Well, no, no. So, something I jot down. <laughs> when I was like, you know, twelve. That my I might rediscover it or remember it, and that might fill in the gaps in something I'm working on now. But no, uh, Child of Imago has been kicking around for nearly thirty years, and those scenes inspired the adjacent scenes. And then as I wrote it, uh, the characters, and as the characters felt more alive, they, you know, they, they began writing their own stories. Um, well, I feel it, you, I, I got to warn you, you almost exactly in this paralleled, I had a dream in this world, and you, you might not know it, but it was in the desert area where, <laughs> in a post-apocalyptic world, as it were, that we we crossed our own DNA with animals just to have a better chance of surviving in the area. And it it made perfect sense. And clearly I was already in, in your strange little world. So I, I may have to uh, send you a story that is based somewhere else, more deserty, less, you know, less jungly. Yeah. The, the, you know, the concept of a, of an animal human hybrid, you know, many authors far greater than I have, have used it, but my inspiration for 30 years ago was I actually read an article in a magazine that scientists were trying to, take bits and pieces from reptiles mm. and, and and create, you know, like you can cut off a lizard's tail and it grows it back. Yeah. And, and like the regenerative, regenerative properties of, of certain animals, could we harness that and put it into medicine or regrow human limbs? And the article was written in a sensationalistic manner that, you know, this research shows that one day we'll be able to regrow severed arms or, you know, uh, and uh, that was kind of the the inspiration for uh, the hybrids in the story. Yeah. Well, I, it was either that or like me being a child of L.A., you listen to um, No Spill Blood too many times. So. Oh. <laughs> so boingo, it, boingo, Boingo did a whole song about the island of Dr. Moreau, and I've always loved that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, always, it's, it's usually usually fascinating when characters are part human, part something else, because it's kind of like, what would it be like, you know, a human enhanced with, and so forth, you know, some other, you know, it'd be, it's an interesting thing to explore. Um, It is. And 
The the last thing I wanted to ask about is you went with um, it's something you used before. You do third person omniscient. What yeah. draws you to that point of view? You know, I I kind of for certain stories anyway. I prefer that that point of view uh, because you know when there's a, a a grand world, I like I like being being given a tour of it um, by a, an omniscient uh, storyteller, and, and also it's 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 a way of uh, of getting an inner dia- inner inner uh, voice of of any and all of the characters. Um, there is a story uh, I have that is a you know first person perspective and uh, it, it, because i feel it fits that it fits it almost feels like someone uh you know reading their journal you yeah. know but, but with dot because because she has that memory loss and because the world is is uh, a fantasy world I, I i thought that that perspective was the best way to tell the story well i liked it and you left us with a little bit of a mystery because we still don't know who or wow or how precisely she was blessed that I caught out of that. So are you thinking sequel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, my books so far are different genres. I do. And, uh, you know, what, one of the, one of the things I hear is you got to stick to one genre. Uh, I find it hard to do that. You know, the, the next book I'm writing is actually a Western and I'm torn because I want to do a sequel to Child of Imago. Like that's, Right. You know, this this Western, I've been working on this for 10 years, but Shot of Imago, now that it's out out into the wild, I I want to I want to stay in that world longer. I want to explore more of it and answer answer questions and and so forth. Well, here Uh, we in on something for me, because I, I, too, have written in a couple different genres and serial murder killing thriller novels are very different from my normal fantasy, sci-fi, historic fantasy noir. So have you considered doing different nom de plumes for different genres? Or do you think all of these are you? I can I consider that, but not for my sake, but for the readers. Because, you know, if Stephen King were to write a romance novel, I don't think people would buy it. You, you know. Bad <laughs> no, example. We would all rush to buy it. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. maybe. Or I, or I, you know, flip it around. If a romance novelist wrote, you know, a supernatural horror, I don't know. I, I, I think if if you were to do to to use a pen name for other works, it would be to you know, give the reader a, a clean palette, and you know, th- they go into it without any kind of bias. Stephen, if you're listening to this, we beg of you write a romance novel because. Yeah. I'm just- <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when Shawshank Redemption, when the movie came out, I remember people watching it expecting horror. They expected monsters and blood and, and yeah. you know, so luckily the movie was so good that it, that it outweighed their, you know, their thwarted expectations. Yeah. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, you would use a, fake name if, if I wanted to like kind of like Garth Brooks when he wanted to explore experimental industrial yeah. pop he came <laughs> up with a new character um and well, this- I was thinking of John always brings up Ursula Vernon because she wrote all the children's books but she writes adult and sometimes fairly horror oriented under Teen Kingfisher and 
I loved that she tried to write a romance novel, and yet, except for all of those people having their heads accidentally cut off, <laughs> that's very romantic in a really twisted kind of world. So, you know. I I, I think for now, I'm just going to stick with my own name. I'll, I'll, I'll take inspiration from Charles Silverstein. You know, what he wrote, everything he wrote, he, he used his own name, even his own signature on the cover. Yep. So... And oh, Uncle oh. Shelby's ABZ book is definitely for adults. There's no, yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah, no, I, I uh, there's a lot of stuff that I could explore in a sequel for Child of Imago. And, you know, I, I did not want everything tied up with a nice bow on it. I wanted, you know, what, ha- what, what, a, what about that blessing? What, what about the widows? What about, um, you know, the, uh, the rest of the purists? Yeah, I mean, I had interesting questions about here it is. It There was one thing, and I didn't know if you meant it, but I wanted to ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. You have our girl wandering around, and I'm going to be honest, in small towns in America, I have faith that there would be problems. But you had, when when we get to the place at the end, it is a much bigger city. And there's part of me that notes that in everywhere in the world, the major metropolises tend to be slightly more democratic socialist because you have to be so mm-hmm. i'm interested if there was any political ripples within kellen now that we're there over time too and how they deal with that yeah that's uh that's a good observation kellen is um i look at all of the all of the different villages as very i mean they're literally isolated but they're also you know socially isolated you know so in the village of colt everyone has the that same strict belief when you're when you're with the uh, widows um they they also have you know they have their own completely different beliefs but they they all follow it helen kind of represents you know like like star trek you know the federation is the the melting pot of all cultures like america is supposed to be right and all the other worlds are singular cultures um so kellen kind of into in my mind I didn't want to hammer it home, but when you see the city council, I'm you know it's 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 made clear that they are humans, hybrids, you know, uh, from different different places. They even have uh, former soldiers there, yeah. um, and so like I kind of suggest that the harmony of a place is dependent upon how the different the different races and cultures can coexist. Yeah, and I, and I had a short story dream about an ottoman there. So, like I said, I love the world you've created. You created a place that people can dream about the same way I guess Baum did. And I love that you've held it at the end that somebody was actually reading an L. Frank Baum book in Kellen, and that was beautiful. Yes, yeah, I, I mentioned. Uh, I'll go ahead and say Wizard of Oz. I mentioned Wizard of Oz at the beginning and the end of the book. Uh, there's a scene where Dot is in the library at the beginning of the story. And she she picks up that book, yeah. And uh, it's it's tied up again at the end. And uh, you know, I th- as I was writing the story, it, it the very very first uh, you know uh, form of this story was very very strict Wizard of Oz. And as I wrote it, like I mentioned before, the other characters' backstories just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it, it didn't feel like a Wizard of Oz story anymore. And it had had the same structure, 
of a hero on a journey and he or she makes friends along the way, Lord of the Rings, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I was okay with that because it was kind of like, uh, it's it's my it's my version of it. And I, I like it when a story has a structure to a classic. Yeah. You know, like Moby Dick, the structure of Moby Dick has been used countless times, you know. It, uh, that it has, yeah. Revenge. And what's going to happen? What, what what happens when a character chases down his revenge? It's like in Vegas, you know, when you chase your money, you end up broke, right? And there's so many. So like a simple gambler's tale of, of uh, you know, like owning Mahoney, he's chasing his money. It's like it just parallels to like uh, Moby Dick in a way. And then there's a character that's along for the ride and observing this man self-destruct, you know. Uh, so I didn't I I didn't mind the parallels at all, and especially by the time the the book was done, uh, it was uh, it was all mine, uh, and I'm sure Mr. Baum would would appreciate it. <laughs> well, I think so, especially from everything I've read about him. Is he was only going to write one, and then he had to write another, and then you know for money and for the kids in his life. So he he wasn't internally consistent. But I have a feeling if you wrote more in this world it could go in so many different directions because how people react in different areas isn't the same. And so thank you for giving us another journey of Dorothy through a, a strange, strange land, making friends along the way. This really enjoyed Child of Imago very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie, for that. I'm glad that you, I'm glad you read it. And I'm glad that you saw it in a, in, in this perspective that, uh, that I wasn't sure people would pick up on, but uh, it seems that you really got into it. <laughs> I I did, but then again, I was trapped in summers in Arkansas, and so there was nothing to do but read every single book that he'd written, which the library had. So, yeah. <laughs> so you 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 could you could write a thesis on on Frank L. Baum. I have so many comments about him, <laughs> so many. But in the end, he was a man ahead of his time, raised by suffragettes. All the most powerful creatures in his world are women, and I kind of dug that. And I have a feeling that if we got to know Imago later, we would discover that there was somebody else bigger than the doctor. Yeah, could be. Uh, you know, everybody has a boss, right? Sooner yes. or later, we all answer to someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I will definitely, I don't know when, but I will definitely explore more of the world of this story. I look forward to it. So everyone needs to run right out and buy Child of Imago out there. We will put a list out on, I think your Deerwood Press is the base place, because then they can decide which uh, which monolith they want to support to get a copy of it. Right. Yes, yes, it's all there. Mm -hmm. Excellent. We will put links to the other fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Lynn, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you for having me, Jeannie. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music are performed by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Street, Arm Street, and wherever you enjoy reading your favorite Wizard of Oz book. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.